Hi, it's something different, audience. It's me doing the intros. So, this is Blind Drunk. We're sitting in fair and square. We're eating, we're drinking, we're having a lovely time. With me is Tim Whiffen. Oh, thank you for having me, David. Well, you're usually the one that does all these things, so it's nice for a change to give you a break. (laughs) And to our very special guest tonight, we have Steve Davis. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Nigel Dobson, also welcome to the program. Thank you for having me too. Well, we won't talk about that. Move on. Lovely. And we're all here. Okay, now I can do the general one of, hi, we're here. Hello. I'm surprised (laughs) that Tim Whiffen... Had our microphones turned off during your introduction, David, because he doesn't trust us to shut up. Of course up. he doesn't. I'm going to get rid of my vest before I melt. No, it was just, it sounded better when David was speaking and we weren't, you, you know. Just <laughs> I'm going to shut right. up now. I'm going to get myself. <laughs> no, don't shut up. We're in your hands. We're in your hands. Huh? This is going to be a monster to edit. I can tell you that. I'm just looking at Nigel's face as we do this. He is regretting being here. No, right no, now. no. I'm thinking of other things, actually. Oh, uh. Even when, even, even when you join us for the podcast, you're not really here. You're not here, really here. <laughs> that was my life for five years. <laughs> but I cherished every moment because well, you, just his you physical survived presence every moment. gave yeah. me sucker. Ah, okay. Well, that explains the, the, why you persisted for so long, I guess. <laughs> Did you ever announce the final um, Is It New School? I didn't because we don't want to rake up coals of <laughs> fires burned. Fires burned. Oh, look, we used to keep a tally with the Is It News trivia quiz because Nigel would go through Trove, which is the online digitised archive of newspapers, newspapers, and he'd pick South Australian stories on the theme of an episode, come up with three stories to read us, one fake and two real, and I and the guest were pitted against Nigel, and if we we got it wrong, he got a point. Mm. If we outed him and we picked the fake, I got a point. Amazing. And I won hands down. When? In my recollection. Mm. Memory is such an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, we had a, to be fair, we had our moments. We both had runs. Yeah. But in the, in the fullness of time, you won. Nigel Dobson there. It's I, recorded now. I think you probably get, you probably got a third of them right out of the three. I think a bit more than that, actually. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> it's just like a... a, a it's just like we'll South be in Australia, five was, years' time. <laughs> a South Australian version of would I lie to you kind of thing. Well, it is. Yeah, yeah it is, yeah. But surely he's got an advantage and there needs to be some penalty for that. Right. He's done all the research. Right, a handicap. Yes. And he's someone that you've got to double listen to what he says <laughs> at the best of times. And so... I, find it, I found it amazing I could actually make up any stories that were believable and trustworthy. <laughs> yes. like the, yep. the fact that my success rate was anything above zero was... Yeah, but it all comes down to credibility if you present as if you're credible. Yeah. So I've, never, we, I've we, never studied Australian history in my life. <laughs> no, but again, it's like calling this podcast Blind Drunk. That has no credibility, and yet we got you guys on as guests and you're happy to be here, He's, suggesting there's some credibility. <laughs> And what Nigel had, because he did, he did bring to the Adelaide Show podcast the gravitas of being someone who works in a scientific field and is all about logic and critical thinking. And so he was like a twisted version of an ad hominem. He was like the opposite. You just kind of believed him, even though he was spinning BS at any time. We it just worked. fell for it. it <laughs> Once you build up that credibility, you can just tell anyone whatever they want to hear. Ad dominum. Isn't this, isn't this sort of the point of good marketing that What's, you can add credibility to whatever it is you say and that if the thing was real anyway it gets double credibility are you asking me yeah you're the marketing guy this is where i feel uncomfortable because there is much of the marketing realm of which i'm ashamed hmm. and, and that's my point of if you double down and you add credibility to the good thing it's a c word steve What's that? Credibility. Credibility, yes. Sorry, it's not the C word I normally hear. I normally hear the C word character, Mm. care, concern. Conundrum. Community. Ah. 
yeah, they're the C words in my life. Charisma, Sheldon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, look, it's true, but I think it's it's nuanced, David and Tim. It's nuanced marketing. Marketing is about creating the environment where an exchange can happen between two parties that hopefully both derive great value from. That's what marketing should do. Should do. Yep. And I don't speak for the big end of town where you've got your Unilevers and all those huge companies that uh, there are people just sitting in there in their cardigans in their head offices and they move the needle a little bit by coming up with this and that. I work at the small to medium end of town where people are running a caravan park or they're running mechanics or an electrician shop or a fishing charter business. And it's real. If you get these things wrong, they don't eat. Mm. And so they, to use the fishing guy we're working with at the moment as an example, we've got to have the right bait on the hook. But at the same time, when someone bites, the experience has got to match what has been promised. And, and so... If I actually was having lunch, I better not mention who, but it was someone very high up in a major bank today. And I had an experience recently with that bank in which it was a real struggle, the process of getting this car loan that I've got. And I said, you know what would have changed it? Is after that beautiful, warm conversation at the beginning where everything was, yep, you're going to get this, it's all good. If only they'd said, now, the next bit is the murky bit. You're going to be put through the ringer to get every excruciating bit of financial detail. I could have been prepared. But instead, I had this lovely glow and then got dragged through it. If they'd been honest and said, this next bit is difficult and you have to get through it and there's no choice and we have to do it this way, then you just could have accepted you've been forewarned. And if they said, look, at the other end of it, we can tell you why we say yes or why we say no, but either way you will understand our answer. I would have been fine. Yeah. It's all about so much in life and relationships is managing expectations. Don't overpromise. So really marketing in its ideal form is about managing expectations to ensure that there's credibility. Yes, and it's also listening to the people that you're trying to serve. I, I, I don't want to talk out of school, but there is a caravan park The owners are a wonderful husband and wife team and they trusted us to flick a survey out to people who'd stayed with them over the three previous years. And they thought and swore black and blue that the reason people sought out their caravan park was for a certain uh, water-based activity. I'm just being careful because South Australia is so small. And this will become a case study, but I haven't got that permission yet. And that was what they swore everything was about. When we did the research, guess what it was? It was peace, quiet, relaxation, and access to the great walking trails in the area. Really? So they completely misunderstood it because they're so busy running it, they don't see it from the perspective. So they weren't doing 360-degree assessment. They were seeing it from their perspective. And so this this to me is the value of marketing that's careful is we didn't blow a huge budget with overextended market research. We just chatted to the people who'd come there. And worked out what the real issue was. And now we are working on reshaping how they present themselves to the world. And guess what? I think they've got a beautiful future for them and their little country town in South Australia. Everyone's going to win from this Mm. just because we took a chance to listen. Mm. Amazing. We need to go. There's a very quiet person at the table here. Nigel, you're being very quiet over there. As the man of data, what would you have brought to the survey design? Because I'm sure you're going to have an opinion on good survey design. Before he answers, I wanted you to say the man of darkness, but you said data. Okay. Okay, man of dark dataness. I think one of the key things on surveys is being very aware of how you frame the question Mm. strongly influences the type of answer you'll get back. Because surveys, unless they're very... um, quantitative as in have absolute rights and wrong answers when they're subjective there's a fair bit of um, impression management occurs mm-hmm. of dice say. loading yeah people want to say things so they're perceived even if it's an anonymous survey there's still a subconscious idea that they're perceived in a certain way so trying to get the truth out of people in surveys is incredibly difficult it's easy to get an answer but it's hard to get 
the real truth. Because if you ask, you know, people, oh, you know, how often do you beat your partner? Mm-hmm. You'll probably get a very low percentage of actual answers come through that won't represent. Well, unless you're in Romania and they've opted out of EU treaty, so they still can yeah, do okay, that. Yeah, it's yeah. the same place we can. Um, but then it, how you frame the question, if it's, you know, how, you know, what percentage of other people do you think do that? Then because it's been one step removed from a personal response, people tend to be closer to the actual real value. So the structure of how you actually word questions and frame it in the context of are you the person answering it or are you trying to gather how you think someone else would do it? Because if you do survey, if you surveyed everyone and said, what do you think other people do, you'll get quite close to reality. If you did a survey and said, what do you do, you'll tend to get a lot of impression management and the data you get won't reflect reality. So there's a real nuance in when you do surveys of how to generate good data. Can I just interrupt? Because I know this is Nigel's time to speak, but what he just said, I learned something in this last week that I used today, and it's all about perception. Mm. Someone said a little trick when you're feeling completely stressed and outside of control, talk out loud about yourself in the third person. Oh, Steve's feeling stressed at the moment. And blow me down it instantly diminishes everything. And it's because I'm talking about the other and I framed it and I've got out of the driver's seat and I'm looking from the outside. It is powerful. Mm. There's two tiny phrases uh, out of Sanskrit philosophy. uh, And the translation is, uh, oh, what is it? Now I have to remember. Um, Are my thoughts useful? How do they behave? Wow. Wow. And it's that difference, are my thoughts useful, is about, well, it's you assessing them. But how do they behave is separating them from self. Yeah. And the power is starting with self and then stepping away. So you pick up, are my thoughts useful? Well, being angry at this idiot, blah, 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 blah. Well, that seems reasonable. Yeah. How do they behave? Well, they're behaving poorly. So when you reflect, it's you that's behaving poorly. So that power of tricking yourself from self into something bigger can be very... You're very good for making sure you don't screw up and offend people unnecessarily. Nigel, you're a cognitive scientist. Do you concur with all of this? Is there evidence or anything to back that up? <laughs> There'll be evidence to back that up. I don't have it on the top of my, top of my tongue at the moment. But how we, how we perceive ourselves, it, it's weird because when humans have a brain, the problem is the brain is judging and evaluating itself from itself. So it's a very sort of circular argument. Mm. And, and this, the step of how do things look from outside is important. So one thing I do is when people are thinking about, oh, should we do plan A or plan B? It's, you do, okay, imagine yourself in, you know, a year's time or five years' time or, you know, whenever you think this plan is going to succeed. And now look back as sort of an outsider of, you know, describe what you saw um, how did, it, how did you get to the success that you achieved? And that, and just using time is another method of getting outside of your here and now mm-hmm. into a future position where clearly you don't know exactly how you'd be in a year's time. It's a, so it's a sort of a future self that doesn't exist yet. And that also gives you the ability to look sort of from outside of, of your own self back into what you're about to do to give you a reflection about, okay, if I do this... In a year from now, how will I be describing what I'm seeing? And, you know, what were the things I saw that led to the success of achieving our goals? What things did I see that went wrong? How did we overcome them? Even though you haven't even done the plan yet, using time as a mechanism for moving outside of your current self into a future hypothetical self and then using that as a window to look back on how you got to where you want to go is another very similar step by using time as opposed to the, you know, stepping outside of yourself and looking in on how would someone else see me there's also the how would my future self looking back see me as well so yeah getting out of your here and now with an outsider's view is a good way tricking ourselves into truth or tricking ourselves into giving up the immediate subjectivity which is being affected by emotion and getting into a a calmer subjectivity in an absolute minimum right system too yeah 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 Mm. going hang on let's get this rational if we possibly can now, to be very rational, gentlemen, we have a lovely beverage we're drinking. Mm. Yes. Who would like to read the label so the listeners know what we're drinking? 
Okay, well, the one we're drinking at the moment, you Wait, chose this one, David. You, you to seemed... be very supportive of persons in the hills whose vineyards and properties got torched. Yeah, so it's uh, Hills Appeal is the name of the wine. Adelaide Hills Wine Fire Appeal. And it says 2019 Syrah Meunier, which is a lovely variety of grape that I've never encountered before in my life. Adelaide Hills and it says here, all proceeds to aid Adelaide Hills fire recovery. This regional blend is made possible by generous contributions from our Adelaide Hills producers. And the who's who is there. Uh, Bird in Hand, Bleasdale, Chain of... Bleasdale's more um, Langhorne Creek, Creek, but I suppose that everyone was touched by this. Well, I'm guessing they probably needed quantity. Yes. And Langhorne Creek might have been able to provide quantity in a way other people couldn't. Um, Chain of Ponds, uh, Handorf Hill... Uh, we've got uh, Honeymoon Vineyards, Howard Vineyard. They've been on the podcast before. Uh, La Prova, our podcast. <laughs> uh, La Prova, I keep forgetting it's your no, no, podcast. It's, it's, no, no, it's the, the podcast. podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, here we, this is getting harder to read now. Uh, Lodestone Wines, Lobethal Road, uh, Longview Vineyard, Murdoch Hill, Nepenthe uh, Wines, Petaluma. Uh, what's that one? So this is like an ultra blend. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Everyone put in for it. Yeah. Really? Mm. Soherntal Estate. I hope I pronounced that right. Second Coming Wines. That's yours, Nigel. Uh, Shaw <laughs> and Smith, from what I've heard. Um, are, are we sure about the Second Coming? <laughs> That's also what I... Uh, we <laughs> I took it dark then, didn't I? And Nigel's staring <laughs> at me. followed through. I'm just waiting for the next um, names that we'll have. Uh, Shining Rock Vineyard. See? That's more me. Uh, Sidewood Estates, uh, the Lane Vineyard. Yeah, Sidewood Estates is you too. <laughs> <laughs> um, almost there, Tynan Road Wines and Wicks Estate. Wow, there's heaps. There's heaps. You kind of wouldn't imagine that that would make any, like, because there's, there's so many yeah. collaborators yes. that it, it's weird that it works. But they've well, all chipped in. It's yes. bound to be an Uber blend. It's just that Sierra and Mooney are going to be yeah. the biggest amount. Yeah, they would have right. to dominate. So, so it must basically be very much a own blend where you can have up to five or six things as long as nothing. No, I can't remember. Big. Was that was that in alphabetical order? No, no. It was in. So bird in hand was the first one. Yes, it was alphabetical order. Okay. Thank it, well, you very I was. Much. Well, yes. was it? Yeah, yes. I thought there were a few that were out. Oh, okay. No, okay. So you know, you're very good at this, Steve. Describe the wine. Oh, well, look, I've been struggling to describe this one because it's this is the first. This is the first time Meunier has. Uh, encountered my palate and if you think of a fresh skeleton with a lovely femur that you can wrap your hand around and gradually drag your hand down this long uh, firm but joyous femur this Oh, yeah. <laughs> is this like the bits of dead flesh attached to it? Yeah, or, no, no. Like, I'm just curious here. Is this about... after the Beatles took the flesh off or this, before? Yeah. This is no. It's clean. It's oh, clean. Okay. So that's a clean. But it's thing, freshly yeah. clean. It's still oh, okay. warm. Mm. And I, what I'm trying Straight to out of the oven. what I'm trying to say here, and I apologise <laughs> to all the winemakers who contributed, but this this is a hard wine on the palate, meaning. It's, it doesn't give you soft, juicy, fleshy bits. You're here like you're walking down a long road through the hills with blistered feet. This is wine that you it, you traverse. You traverse this wine. This is not a wine that gives you free kicks along the way. This is a very serious wine. This is as close to a, a European-style wine, a French-style wine, as I've come across from uh, our patch hills. of turf. Yeah. So I'm, uh, just as a little side note, apparently when you clean your teeth is the only time you get to directly clean your skeleton. Uh, there's a oh, little yeah. side note that I just remembered. Um, but this wine, like it's, this is, if you're a Pinot lover, this is a very simple sidestep to go towards. I was thinking something mm. along mm. those lines when I've been tasting it. It's quite Sorry. sweet and it's, it's, it's somewhat light, but it's sophisticated. Is oh. anyone at the table at Cabernet Franc, friend? Oh, yes. And Howard Estate. Uh, I think they've got the either the first or the biggest uh, plantings of Cabernet Franc mm. in Australia. So to me, this is kind of like an austere Cabernet Franc. Perfect. That's the closest I can get if I had to make. And you know, for years I drank the Mount Tanglefoot Cabernet Franc from 
Victoria because it was the only one is you know readily available, and it was almost like it had a stainless steel spine. And you mm. sort of jumped in here with bone, and to me, this yep. has almost got that stainless. And that's not to say it's not nice; it's very nice. Mm. But you don't get any luscious fruit, you don't get any bouncy pillows, you don't get a bean bag. No, you get a you know a carved you know sort of oak chair mm-hmm. that's very nice for a while. Yep. But you better shaped it because it's not going to shape to you. And it feels good to buy because it's supporting everyone from that part of the turf. But you just you said. It wasn't like a soft pillow or a bouncy chair. The other wine we've started drinking, David, uh, it hasn't made its way to your glass yet. Because I'm still drinking this one. Is the 2017 Tim Smith Wines Barossa Shiraz. Mm. This is like a visit to the Moulin Rouge. Okay, well, someone top me up, top me up. Top, oh, top, yeah, top. May, yes, may I also have a glass? I'm very keen to taste the, the Tim Smithen. Oh, this, uh, this, <laughs> this is Moulin Rouge. This right. is completely indulgent um, in all the ways that you would expect from the peak of the Moulin Rouge as captured in literature and film. We don't mean the Nicole Kidman version. Uh, No, even in the... Probably more so than Nicole Kidman. This has got showgirls on the palette. Come on, don't we want to go back to the area of... um, What was that wonderful sort of crazy alcohol that they used to put opium around the edge of the glass? Oh, yes. Um, Don't we want to go back to absinthe? Absinthe. And opium on the edge of the glass. Well, it's good. Go for, hard or go home. If you're on a date, it's good because absinthe makes the heart grow, grow fonder. fonder. <laughs> uh, this is just succulent. Oh, my God. Tim Smith. This wine, I would go through my savings account and put everything on the table to stay here all night. This is beautiful. It's su- succulent. It's fruity without being sweet. It's classy. It's gorgeous. You just want to spread yourself out all over it. This is the big comfy velvet beanbag. Absolutely. I'm, and I'm going to interrupt here just for a minute. Audience, you will be hearing there are crowd noises tonight. Mm. This is because we're actually out in the world. We are sitting at Fair and Square on Wellington Square and Paul keeps checking in on us to make sure we're all okay. Wine list is all South Australian. Food is all amazing. People who work here are all lovely. You can bring your LPs and play them. Oh, you can, can you? sit at the same table we're sitting at tonight, just not with us now. You know, which is a gorgeous redwood, I believe, something like that. So, would you, well, I'd, I'd say it's probably gum or something. Yeah, it feels like a big bit of the stuff. So, gentlemen, do you want to describe the decor for our listeners? Something that, of course, has no impact on me. Uh, um, I. It's, it's like, it's kind of like modern, kind of slate mixed with a bit of chic. It's like the waste paper basket at an architect's office ah. where there's an idea crumpled up and thrown in the corner here, mm. another idea that's crumpled up and thrown in. It's the outspewings. It's eclectic. Of, it, it, it's eclectically the outspewings of an architect. Probably who've been consuming absinthe to ah, varying yes. degrees. With significant yes. amounts of opium around the edge yes, of the glass. Yes, yes. Uh, There's some burnt orange. Uh, there's some beige or grey. Yeah, the, the burnt orange is rather 70s, which goes nicely with the 1950s cabinet, which I assume <laughs> is about to be moved into somewhere else by the looks of it, sort of parked in just the front here. Yeah, it's a big chalkboard. There are modernish windows looking out, looking out over Wellington Square. Now, audience, you get to look straight out onto Wellington Square, yeah. which by sighted accounts is a pretty nice thing to do as a lovely green space. And if you go back to the late 80s, I used to be there uh, in the old 5DN uh, and mix, 5AD, uh, uh, mix building back then, doing talkback on 5DN they, with Wayne to Dawn. Were they on the edge of, at the end of 10th Street there, were they? Yeah, the, the end of 10th Street, yeah, no ARN. So basically where Channel 9 was? Uh, across the road from Channel okay, 9. Okay, so yeah, Channel 9 and radio yeah. across the world. Yep. Wow, I must have made the two pubs along there wild for outside of work. Oh, yes. There were many nights drinking late into the night with the likes of Jeremy Cordeau and people like that. Jeff Sunderland was there in my return visit. So the sort of classic era this of talkback. Yeah, in golden age of radio, really, yeah. isn't it? When it's... talkback still had an IQ. Mm. Uh, well, it was slipping, to yeah, be but fair. it had an IQ. I didn't say kept it. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, and then also from that building on September 12, 
2001, I was the one in the newsroom who broke the news to Adelaide on Mix and 5DN of the September 11 attacks. Wow. So you had to kind of put the serious voice on and Mm -hmm. read it like you understood what it meant when your head was spinning. Yep. Eek. And I was, like many people, I was in the newsroom. I had, it was about 10.30ish at night from memory. And uh, I remember we've got TVs going in there. And I had just written the three overnight bulletins because you'd use three bulletins and they'd go midnight, two and four. And the other, you know, they just rotate through the night. Yep. And I was getting ready to go home, and I thought, oh, they're playing Towering Inferno on the on the TV. And I looked again and went, oh, no. And the AAP feed was going nuts. And I said, Bob Byrne, I think, from memory, was the announcer at the time on DN. I forget who the mix guy was, and I just had to break into the program. Rang our news director, Alan Baskin, and... Uh, he said, everyone's going in. So instead of just one person, we had the whole staff there within half an hour. I did not leave until 4.30, having started at uh, 3 the day before. Um, crawled into bed, said to my now wife, then girlfriend, uh, she said, oh, why are you late? I said, well, two planes have crashed into the World Trade Center. Uh, another plane has hit towards the Pentagon. And, I, and she said, oh, bullshit. Because I'm known as a bit of a prankster. And she just turned over and promptly went to sleep. Yeah, and she assumed that you'd been at the Oxford or the Irish pub down the road with Daniel O'Connell yeah, and had exactly. a serious bender and been playing computer games. Yes, but the sad thing is our job for the following week was to find every angle to scare the bejesus out of, out of South Australians because we had yeah. to find the links to SA. And it was at the end of that week that I left radio. I'd had enough. Yeah, I can understand that because that's when the phone started ringing off the hook to provide media coverage. And I'm like, hang on, you don't know who Al-Qaeda are and you want me to scare the local population. Mm. Numb nuts. That, you could actually probably point to that as a really significant turning point in, let's say, even Australian media or worldwide Western media maybe. Well, if it bleeds, it leads to on a whole new level because oh, yeah. it became the whole thing of how big the scale can be and therefore the news cycle could be even faster and have less depth. Yeah. Because the horror, you know, the horrifying image becomes more powerful than the story. And I've always hated the feigned empathy that news readers and media people put on when they're talking to someone and they expect it to be sad. Yeah. They go, "So, um, tell me, Nigel, blah blah blah, you know, whatever." And this just, it just, it destroys the innocence of actually having that emotion in that role. Because then we had that poor South Australian man who had rung his brother while trapped at the top of one of those buildings and had to decide to jump as the flames and the heat were getting worse. And at the same time, I had this internal hatred that, yes, all the announcers are sounding so sincere, but at the same time, there'd be a part of them going, this is awesome radio. Yep, we're going to get another 10 points off of this. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. See, for me, it was the Lint Siege was the final straw for me in mainstream media. Like Channel 7 had asked me to be on as it was happening, had filmed six or seven minutes. I'd actually been able to explain what was going on. They cut it down to 30 seconds of shock, horror, mayhem. Yeah. It rang me the next day. It said, oh, David, it was you know, it went down so well. Would you like to do whatever it is this day, tonight, tonight? <laughs> and I not so politely said, fuck off. And they're like, what? And I said, well, you butchered what I did yesterday. Why the hell would I want to do it again? And it was such a shock for them that I said that, that they ended up giving me one of the senior producers, the top cameraman in a journal who knew what they were doing, and recorded 10 minutes, played four minutes, and have never talked to me again. See, we are not served by that. No. It's disservice. <laughs> no, none of us. It's disservice. And we, we need institutions to stay robust, I believe, for our society to remain stable and things like that erode hang on I've I, Nigel oh, yeah, here we go I think we're all keen right yeah, go Nig- for it Nigel Nigel's breathed in <laughs> on the other hand though yes is it just as important to have a stable and convincing narrative that make people feel secure in their lifestyles it, which institutions do bring us yeah but does the actual truth really matter whoa <laughs> Okay, Nigel brings the heavy package. <laughs> I, I, what's more important, having the actual reality or having a 
carefully manicured reality for you where your beliefs in structures of society are maintained, how, you know, there's a narrative that is consistent with, you know, the majority of the beliefs is maintained. How important is that when it comes down to maintaining... You know, people's happiness and let's go with what actually reality. happened. What actually happened was they scared the crap out of everyone, yep. failing everybody. So yeah, from that, the alternative would have been real things to say. This organisation is known. This organisation have been promising this kind of stuff. Multiple governments have actively not done anything to stop Al Qaeda. So this happened. It's a single bad event. Don't expect it to happen again. It yeah, could have that, been. Dealt that doesn't with. blend into the narrative you want to try and convey, though. Yeah, but I'd rather that narrative that this is a blip, which is what it was. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah, okay, but from their point of view, is that do they just want a blip narrative, or do they want a continuation of the whole story and the narrative? Well, if we want so a continuation, have... we're into the, the grounds of Orwell in nineteen eighty four. But do, but okay, so okay, so let's say that 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 um, Orwell had uh, a pretty good access to what most people want. Say the majority. Say the seventy percent of average IQ, let's say. And then that, 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 that he had access to that and really people do want the actual truth and he was just highlighting the fact that we, we, we don't. I mean, how, how, as, as, as a quite an intelligent man, Nigel, how, how much access do you have to whether a, um, let's say, an average person, a, a South Australian punter, let's say, um, how much access do you have to whether they would actually want to be Feeling uh, whether they would actually feel secure by by that consistent narrative, or whether well, pe- people generally don't like inconsistency. They don't like random things. Sure, and so people always seek out consistency. Absolutely, and part of that is is having a consistent narrative that the world is how they'd like it to be, and they're quite happy to disregard facts, reality, if it means that in in their own mind they can maintain a particular perception of. A narrative that is consistent because the one thing that humans regardless of their culture or anything is normally change is seen as a bad and dangerous thing normally a negative is normally a negative thing and so most people would rather have consistency and stability regardless of the actual truth of what's actually happening but 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 but, 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 nigel i i like what you're heading but you are peddling a false dichotomy in this example because what we got was not a stable narrative. No, we got scared the bleep out of everyone yes. to allow politicians to be mediocre. And, and I think there was a better option. But what does mediocre mean, though? <laughs> what mediocre oh. means is that policy doesn't have to achieve anything other or than change. to keep us afraid. Yeah, or change. Okay, let's go back to this thing. Change is not a problem if it's novelty. So humans love novelty, but novelty yes. can't scare them. And yet if we look, if you're constantly exposed to novelty you get more instances of change that is either a bit frightening or a bit uncomfortable. So if you're a high novelty seeker, you also end up getting better dealing at the sort of the darker side of change where it's genuinely uncomfortable. So if you want to dull novelty to the point where we can't deal with novelty, then we're back in sort of the, you know, the period of starting agriculture through to the, say, Greek period, 6,000 years of really, really slow development where there wasn't much novelty in life. And do we want that little novelty? Well, do most people want novelty or stability? Most people want stability with some novelty, otherwise the stability starts to bore them. Yes. Oh, hold on, but I, I don't, this isn't really a question of stability, I don't think. It's a question of whether the media should be consistent in lying to us to make us comfortable or we're just inconsistent in se- telling us the truth. Is, that, is, is, is consistency mm. in truth, does that not feed and does that not make people feel comfortable? Does that not? Is that not stability? Is yeah. truth not stability? Can people handle the truth? Oh, look, it's okay. Um, Nigel, yeah. Nigel, uh, I, in my conversations, I don't think Chris Dalton will mind me mentioning he's the marketing manager for the State Library. And I said to him today in a chat that we have, he holds a reservoir of knowledge, of captured wisdom and experience over the years. And Trove, which is an amazing archive of online newspapers, I despair the people in 20, 30, 40 years looking back at the trove of today versus the trove of 100 years ago. Be- yeah, because it is, it's, it is a paucity of what journalism has 
sometimes reached what we're getting served up today. It's bullshit. It's mm. crap. It it is not is not worthy of being a human endeavor. Mm. Whereas even though it was flawed and still driven by having to make money back in its early days, at least there was a sense of when you're writing for the public record, you're writing for the public record. record. Yeah. Whereas now all media is just another dose of is this entertaining for 30 seconds? Did you see the ad that came before it and after it? Yeah. And that is a problem of attention span. And we're in a new era of too much data. And too much data has not been good for us so far. Because not too much knowledge, because we're not using it as knowledge. We just have too much data at the moment. With that thing with the attention span, though, is it a case of the media adjusting their content to the attention span or is it the fact of people adjusting their attention span to the media? No, the attention mm-hmm. span has been deteriorated by technology. No, I, I, but, I agree. Oh, I, I feel like there, but there are good instances of... Um, there are good instances of large followings for content that is not adjusted to short attention spans. Like the Adelaide Show podcast. I was about to say this, right? Mm. So at you two, well, uh, let's say... Uh, you, uh, Nigel, you have been, but not formally, had, no, formally known formally, as Adelaide formally, Show formally. Podcast, Nigel. Sure, yeah. Okay, uh, so sorry. people listen to the Adelaide Show Podcast, and let's say let's perhaps doesn't always delve into you know long form, in depth journalism, right? But 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 uh, the project has been um, truth seeking in some sense, right? Because I mean, you you endeavour to describe even wines to the best extent that I've ever been exposed to um, and and even telling people's individual stories or, or even when you do cover news you know you 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 seek to uncover the truth I think in good faith in ways that we don't experience from mainstream media and you have a, you know let's say um, a, a decent following enough that you would continue to do it um, are you two more journalists than what we actually see on TV. You know, are the two of you more true to what a, 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 a traditional journalist is than than what we see? I would like to say there's a part of what a journalist should be that I think we feel, which is driven by an earnest curiosity. And I think journalists, the good ones, are just that. Mm. It's when they're sent out like whipping boys or whipping girls on the errand of an editor who has a preconceived right. notion. Chase the ambulance now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think that part, I, I think, is what we bring. And that, because but, you have no editor, right? Because it, well, it is yeah. you. It is yeah. you. It's so, us. Yeah. It's us. Uh, unfettered, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, or untethered. Yeah. Yes, both. Well, <laughs> I, I think one of the aspects there is, is the fact that we don't, you know, have financial aspects yes. to it and that Dan, Dan O'Reilly who's a cognitive psychologist in the US wrote, yeah, a, wrote yeah, a good Dan book Ariely. yeah and he actually had a chapter on the value of nothing or the value of zero and, and pointing out the difference between people's behaviour when they do something for no reward versus when it becomes there's monetary reward or some other reward in it and it seriously sort of changes what you put emphasis on yeah. when you're doing particular behaviours and you know there's a financial reward in it versus when there's not a financial reward. And even though it's not really always overt, it is definitely, it can subvert your behaviour if in the back of your mind there's a dollar driving why you're saying something or what you're doing. And I think that's a really, I don't know how they ever managed to do this in professional media where obviously there's a dollar involved with every transaction you do, but it's how do you do those stories that don't necessarily have the financial transaction but are important. I can tell you, we once honoured institutions and the community as a higher value than the self. And then we fell under the sway of the American dream and its media and the heroes became twisted into those Marlboro Man heroes and it all went to hell in a handbasket. So the cult of the individual took over? Yes. Yeah, but it's more than the cult of the individual. At some level, in a world where you think, I'm going to do okay economically, even if I just do the normal amount of work in the normal way. And there's a bit of spare time and there's some spare resources, and we can do that to make the world a better place. And the two things can be done concurrently. So it's sort of the conscious capitalism model of doing good while you're doing well. Mm. Okay. You need to know that you can do well to do good. 
if you can't do well, where do you find the energy to do good? So are you saying that, let's say, the project of uh, Blind Insights or Blind Drunk or the Adelaide show should be monetizable because it is doing good? No, I'm saying no. that there's always the risk when you start doing well to go, we don't want the cash to stop. So to keep doing well, you'll do less good. Right. So where you and I have talked about before, Tim, a model where anyone like us could put in a grant application mm. to the federal government to get our money for the next three years to be a funded media thing as long as we abide by the rules mm. but it then ends so you can do good and do well at the same time knowing for that period of time you've got your cash right? and you right. can't necessarily get it again because it might be that you can only have one of these in a row or maximum of two in a row so and I would rather see the media funded in this way where mm. good and well mm. can be balanced this was uh, a model of the ABC that I David and I thought up one day um, where in, instead of having a specific TV channel or radio or whatever it was that they just funded specific shows like the military funds research grants and that you know certain uh, applicants would get a, a TV segment effectively for a year or something like that on contract and had the freedom to do whatever they so wished within that um, obviously passing through the application process and that it was taken as seriously as the military would take a defence contract or something like that. So you do the news properly for the period of time, mm. but you can't become the system. You can't normalise it. You can't go, well, we've got to keep the sponsors on site because the grant is going to end. Because I've been asked twice today by two different people, why do you do the Adelaide show? What's your metrics of success? Yeah. And you know what? I think what's kept me going, and you, you'll say what... Because, Nigel, seriously was the longest serving partner and colleague in this pro in this project <laughs> and i am i will to the day i die be grateful for that it was life-changing um i think the fact that it was for free and the fact that i had voices around me all the time saying you are stupid for doing this monetize it you are stupid what a stupid thing to be doing by who i thought was a close friend and some other people but it would, that just made me angrier with righteous anger to righteous say, no, we can actually do stuff for our bloody community that we feel it is our stuff. And sure, it's I, I create this for my own taste and it's lovely when it connects with other people. And it was that fire in the belly that kept me going. We dabbled with some sponsorship every now and then. It, it was really light and it was a fool's errand and we should never have done it because it's not about that. There's a purity that comes, coming back to your point, Nigel, a purity of going, there's no master here other than our curiosity and what satisfies us. One, one thing I remember is the fact that occasionally we'd be interviewing people who'd been in professional media and they'd had like literally their entire career for 40 years had been professional media. And I remember a few of them on time after we'd interviewed them actually said, oh, that was, you know, close to the best interview I've ever actually done in my life. And I'm thinking, you've probably done so many yeah. interviews, more than hot dinners I've ever had. Yeah. I just saw that as, oh, well, you know what? We must be doing something right yeah. if someone who's honestly and there's no quit in it for them at all to say those sorts of things. And some of the people we... We were interviewing. We were in the concern before, and of oh, you know, we know there's a bit of darkness in the history and things like that. And it's like, oh, how we handle that? And it's just, like, oh, well, well, we'll see what happens. You know, it probably won't come out. But there was times where our interviews went down quite a dark personal area, mm. and they came out fine, and no harm done and everything. But the people said, oh, you know, that's the first time I've ever talked about that yes. sort of thing. Yeah. And these were people who literally had the opportunity to say those narratives and those stories any time the last 20 to 30 years. And they, some of those things had derailed their life completely to nearly a you know, fatal end. And it was quite interesting to realise, oh, wait a second, this is the first time this person's talked about, you know, how this actually happened. And it's like, well, that's curious that for a non-profit podcast in Little Isle Adelaide, when you had all the opportunity of maybe using this in some way or monetizing this or selling the dramatic story of these semi-famous people, that they never took it upon it because just the, the personal anguish of what they'd been through, they could never do the trade-off between, well, I'll sell you my story for X yeah. sort of thing. And it was I always found it quite interesting and sort of humbling that they'd be willing to complete strangers 
tell us things that they've never told anyone ever, even though they would have had opportunity from many of the media, main media organisations to do a, you know, tell-all sort of story, that people would actually just take up, you know, what we call ourselves as, you know, amateurs mm. at, at collecting information and telling a narrative and a story. And our podcast has always been about the story and the path people have got to mm. wherever they've got to. So I always find that quite interesting that there was just, you know, when you talked about, you know, you know, do we see it, how we see ourselves? Like I've only ever seen it as a as an amateur thing, okay. and yet when you have people saying, "Oh, you've actually done better work than people who actually earn a quid for it," it makes you think about well, that's interesting because what's the difference between earning money to do your job and just doing it because it's an enjoyable pastime that you like doing? Editorial control. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, the the well, thing. Oh, the, uh, the distinction. Well, sorry. The pattern I want to draw, and this is completely biased by the fact that my background at university was indeed philosophy and media. But there seems to be a lineup, basically, between kind of what you're talking about in the media, and I guess let's say um, the project of philosophy. I guess so. If if we talk about it as the pursuit of truth. There's an old uh, saying in philosophy, I don't know what the Latin is, whether it was in Latin, but uh, it's um, philosophy bakes no bread, but um, man does not live by bread alone, of course. Mm. And, and so I guess in, in some sense we could change that in, in relation to media and we could say that the pursuit of truth bakes no bread, but... <laughs> um, but man cannot live by bread alone. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and so maybe maybe I will have to concede your point that... that mainstream media it's literally impossible for them to monetize the consistency of truth <laughs> it's not impossible but it would require a different funding model mm. and a different structure like how many people would love to be able to go commercial like you know if we could make a bag of money doing fun things that we enjoy mm. great yeah and it's going to have some sort of impact if that ever happens just by the nature of well we want that next bag of money yeah but also i think what happens is there's a distinct difference between individuals getting enough money to be okay versus corporations needing to pay shareholders. The individuals who need a little bit of money to be okay can stay grounded in how and why they made decisions. Whereas the corporation doesn't hire you to have any say in your future. They hire you to serve their agenda, which is progressively more divorced from curiosity or the public or the good or doing well. I, I think the payment aspect of it is a hair trigger um, and I think Nigel made this point. The moment you're doing it for anything other than zero, you've got to be being paid full toed odds mm -hmm. for that satisfaction. Because uh, I remember when I used to DJ, mobile DJ, every now and then I'd give a friend like 50% discount, whatever. And I hated those nights because I still you're doing had the to, same amount of work. The same crap. Whereas yeah. what I would love to have done, if I had my time over again, do it for free. Yeah, so either free or full pay. And, yeah. and, and this is the other thing. I just want to say this publicly while I can, and Tim's probably watching the timer go around and around. No, it's fine. We did five years of the Adelaide show, the first five years, every week, not missing a single week. And that drive only comes when that drive is more intrinsically based than any exchange It has to be intrinsic, money. not extrinsic. Mm. Yep. So to, exactly. to, you know, to seek truth and to talk to people and let them tell their stories, you have to be you know, profoundly intrinsically driven. Or desperately in need of attention. <laughs> yeah. And I put my hand up for both of those. To me, it's uh, I am... <laughs> This weird connection, where uh, combination, I, I'm quite open to say, I love this. I don't want you to pack this microphone up tonight, Tim. Ah, uh, yes, fair um, enough. I'm cursed by that. But do you want more food? Yes, I do actually. Okay, yeah. so if you want more food, eventually the mic has to go off. Okay. Oh no, we got we got plenty of time. Let's let's give ourselves <laughs> another 20 minutes or 25 minutes or so. Yeah, but the kitchen's only open to eight ish. Yes. Okay. Well, do we want to stop now? No, it's no, 20 no, past no, seven. 20 past five. Another, another ten. Yeah. yeah. Or. or you guys order and just leave me in the corner with the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's much better with the interactions of it all is. of us. Now, I feel like I twisted okay. this into, uh, I should be honest here. Okay. In my intentions of letting this conversation end up where it has, that this exact topic is what I hope to do in my master's next year. So, so we're helping him write his master's, yeah, which means um, at the yeah. end of his master's, any, any we'll references. get a mega dinner here now at Fair and Square <laughs> yeah. on Wellington Square. Do we Stare get a reference? Do we get a more importantly, yeah, we get a thanks. dinner. Well, wait a second. If this goes on public record, then basically you're writing the risk of 
plagiarism when he's developing masters to yourself. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, that... uh, it's just a preliminary discussion yeah. for research purposes, Nigel. You should know all about this in your no, career. You, you'll just be on the academic referee uh, when I apply. That's the. <laughs> oh, this may Thank be the you only for this time. Very I... nice bottle of wine. It's yeah. much appreciated. Yeah. Great. <laughs> it may be the only time I walk back on campus is to celebrate him graduating, yeah. and then I'll burn the place. <laughs> and that's sad for all of us because we need people like you, David, Actually, on our no, campuses. Yeah, but well, you, know, people, also, you don't. Doesn't matter if the canvas is burnt down. There's too. Oh, no, I can still be there, just but with the flamethrower. Can I say, Tim as well? I've li- I I listened to Blind Insights, Tim. You're an awesome human, and oh, that's I l- kind. I love the and a brain, and I love the fact that David, the the teacher, yes, has the the generosity of spirit to say please be part of my enterprise with me because some people of his ilk would be likely to say, no, no, the spotlight is all mine. And what we get as listeners from you two and your interaction is you come out of the shadows with these lovely, as you've been doing tonight, just these lovely encapsulations and spinning things into another direction. And it's a great chemistry. Oh, it's I'm like glad. me and Nigel. Like I am the intellectual one. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to laugh, and then I laughed at the fact that I, I just laughed. was waiting for what Nigel was going to say in response. <laughs> I, I appreciate Steve's honesty there. <laughs> Are we now back to sort of a bone that's been cooked in an oven and it's rather polished? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're still in the Moulin Rouge at the moment with uh, Tim Smith. Mm. Yeah, I've got to let Tim know that we've shared a night in a bordello. That's a well, more importantly, Tim has to come on and drink one with us. Mm. Ah, it's a rather good drop, that one, I've got to say. That is beautiful. Mm. That is wine made exactly for my palate. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to propose a third bottle if we're brave enough to go there. Uh, I'm happy to go there. I think we need to go down the Rockford Mopper Springs path. Oh, that is magnificent. Because that is the logical follow-on that's in the middle. (laughs) Gasson. Gasson. Moulin. We also have to talk about your moustache tonight. Uh, Yes. Oh, I had... uh, Yes, I had wanted to bring this up, by the way. Um, We... Well, he grew it, so it came up all of its own accord. Boom, boom. <laughs> yes. Look. Um, that was a close shave. <laughs> no, it wasn't. That's no, the point. That's the problem, yeah. <laughs> Today, listeners, I shaved my beard because it was becoming too unruly. And I really was just absolutely hating it, basically. And, so the uh, COVID beard went? It went. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, no, it was I grew pre-COVID. It was most of last oh, was year, it? wasn't it? I, yeah, so I, I did grow a beard pre-COVID, and then I shaved it for my engagement party in... February, no March, and then I grew it exactly that, from man, then. That was then the you grew a COVID beard. Mm, that was literally know. the weekend before lockdown. That was great timing. It was. Yeah. I yeah. forgot that that yeah. was the last out in the world it weekend literally before was. your it was engagement the party or something. It was March. Wow. Yeah. Um, when you want to hear a cowardice story about facial hair, just ask me. Ah, uh, a cowardice. We'll do that for next year's blind drunk. <laughs> 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 well, yeah. Look, it, I'm 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 self conscious about it, but I really wanted to get the gentlemanly kind of mm-hmm. twist going. Um, I need to get a bit of wax on the end there. Yeah, it's just it, or an electric shock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, clearly, hair wax doesn't work because I tried putting that in today. It's not worked at all. But um, I'm going to shape it because it. Uh, I decided uh, after you said it was quite becoming that it was like that was <laughs> oh, great. message uh, received the, loud and clear. I'm the anti-message, am I? That um, could be a great advert. <laughs> talked about marketing, the anti-message. <laughs> uh, now, I, I love the fact that it's twirled moustaches because back in the day, two very quick things from La Mama Theatre where I cut my teeth treading the boards in theatre is at the time of the first Gulf War, I happened to be on radio at 5MU as a journalist and really annoyed by what I thought was a growing, this is back to you, Nigel, this growing commentary of Muslim, Arab-type people bad, Western people good. And I knew there was more nuance in the world than that. And I just happened... Not since the Crusades. <laughs> there you go. Um, anyway... <laughs> So, actually, back in those days, I used to what, do... back in the Crusades? No, back in the Crusades when I first started in radio. <laughs> yeah. uh, nuance, when I had a nuance, I lived a little hole in the ground. <laughs> I was runner-up in the Holy Grail Awards one year. Oh, but was there a fluffy bunny with a hand grenade? <laughs> there was three... 
but that was at the Moulin Rouge and I'm not going to talk about it now. Uh, anyway, but I used to listen to BBC in my one ear whilst doing the program in the other so wow. that we could switch. Anyway, here's the thing. I went to Fremantle, to Perth, to see my sister at the time in a, in a bookshop, just out of the blue, found this on the spine of a book, Fate of a Cockroach by Tufik al-Hakim. And, what's, and so I ha, you have to, you can't see that title, can and you? Not pick it and up. not pick, not it, pick it up. It up yeah. And it's a play written by an Egyptian playwright that was, he, he risked his life by absolutely satirising the royal family. What era? Uh, it was uh, mid-20th century. Okay, so under Nassau or someone or even earlier under the Brits. Scary stuff. So brave. And yet nuanced, beautiful story in English, translated in English. And I bought it for two bucks, whatever, came back. And Michael Shanahan, who's now partner with me at Talked About Marketing, he was my director back then in theatre. And I said, we've got to do this play because we need to show the world that those cardboard cutout bad guys have as much nuance and depth in their life as we think we have in ours. And so we put on Fate of a Cockroach and I was the Minister Cockroach. Very deferential. Chief Cockroach. Yes. It was an amazing experience. However, he had another play, uh, which I forget the title of, that we did after this. And this is the 12th. There was a bad mistake with the translation. And we, it was, it actually said a man with 12 moustaches and it was meant to be twirled. Mm. And, of course, moustache <laughs> is written in the plural anyway. And so we had this guy on stage and he had 11 <laughs> moustaches plastered all over his body. And the greatest... It was the human caterpillar. <laughs> yes, the greatest gag is he comes and he sits down centre stage. Everyone's laughing in the audience because 11 moustaches... And then he crosses his legs and underneath one of his shoes is another moustache. <laughs> and that was the 12 moustaches. And it was all based on a misinterpretation. It was just 12 moustache. That's it. That's awesome. So that's why you should keep it. Well, the 12 moustaches. It's, it's a good case. I'd rather he became a cockroach. Oh, we actually, I mean that in the nicest possible way. If you could do something deep and meaningful that we, involves a cool book title. Mm. We trained as cockroaches. I remember summer nights in rehearsals, walking the streets of Adelaide after dark, seeking out cockroaches and watching the way they walked. And cockroaches scuttle from being still, sizing up a situation, going straight to another point and, and hiding still. again. Mm. And so we learned how to walk and move on stage like cockroaches. Importantly, have you ever stopped? Yeah. No, never. Is that is that a life skill, Steve? I think it's a life skill because I'll survive the next atomic war. Well, I was going to mm. say, great way to avoid the drone strike. <laughs> <laughs> or the Mortine spray. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. Drone with Mortine. <laughs> uh, so, and now we've got oh, a helicopter in the background, oh, kids. Yeah. Um, oh, it's one of those black ones. They follow you everywhere. <laughs> I think it's the one going to the Royal Adelaide. No, I do. Stop with the conspiracy <laughs> theories, dude. And I'll just make a note that the Rockford um, Grenache, Mataro, Shiraz, Rez, the Mopper Sprint has arrived. It's a proper blend, isn't and it? And that's what they want you to believe, David. Well, the, that the, it's actually the, going to a hospital. Well, yeah, but it's what they're doing at the hospital. That's the big question. Oh, no, they're just going closely there to so just you doing think a it's going to the hospital, me, but me. it's not really. See, oh. this is Mr. Around. Dystopia. This is the man I worked with for so many years. Come on, are we doing the Christmas special again this year where Nigel and I terrify everyone out of wanting to be alive on Christmas Day? <laughs> I, I'm up for that. If only Nigel will answer my calls, he's more... Nigel, more... are you doing the Christmas special, dude? I'm do a Christmas special. 2020 is going to have to be a special Christmas this year. Should we just start in mid-November oh, yeah. and do two weeks? Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll probably need to interview Jesus coming back to life this year, being 2020, because it's probably on the books of, of all the years yeah. up until now. Mm. What year is it going to happen? Oh, I don't know. 2020? Oh, yeah. Good odds now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or you just find someone who thinks they're back. They don't have that, to be back. They just need to think they're back. That's never been hard. <laughs> Jesus might come back for uh, Donald Trump's inauguration. Is it an inauguration for your second term? Yeah, it's always an inauguration. There you yeah, go. But that's, in, that's next year, though. That's January 21st or something. Yeah, yeah so okay. by then we will have done the Christmas special. People will be in therapy. It'll all be okay. Yeah. And Donald Trump will be on some island that does not support extradition. Uh, the United States. Oh, yeah. Because if, if he sort of makes the Panama Canal bigger, it is an island. Wow. It can be done. 
Well, wait a second. What's his name? Epstein's properties are up for sale at the moment, aren't they? So there's some oh, you cheap things on the market there. See, this is going dark really quickly. <laughs> Mind you, if he made the Panama Canal bigger, does that mean he doesn't have to worry about the islands that China's trying to take over? No, nah, a different bit of the planet, dude. Like, we'll do geography too. <laughs> no, I don't mean that. Oh, you're just as bad as Nigel. Everyone just makes fun of me. I, I'm on an earnest... I'm listening, Steve. Thank I'm you. Listening. I'm on an earnest crusade. It's all about shipping the channels. The guy cares. It's all about shipping channels. Does that mean you've got... Uh, the Chinese run the Panama Canal. Really? Yeah, they got a lease. <laughs> like the Darwin Port. Oh, God. <laughs> What was Thanks, that? Dave. That's Sorry. great news. China didn't run it during the book that I read, The Tailor of Panama. No, no, no. They, they took control in about 2003. Because the Americans went, well, hey, we can outsource this and make money. Yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> and lose control of one of the most important shipping lanes in the world. Hey, take over the Panama. We'll give you the 5G network as well. Mm. Is that one of the worst lies that we've ever told? What's that? that? If you can outsource something, you It's make a good money. idea. Yeah. yeah. Be close to it, really. Yeah. Well, it's called, for the top 1%, it's if we outsource it, we can make them think they're still doing okay while we steal money from them. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of fiction. Is that Tim Ferriss is a big pr- proponent mm. of outsourcing your life. Have some Porsche. That's because he doesn't have one. Well, he is quite nerdish. And he's just constantly doing media to demonstrate he is a real person as opposed to a cardboard cutout. There you go. I've never outsourced. I do it all myself, much to my wife's chagrin. That's the reason we stopped doing weekly podcasts. We discovered it was 15 hours a week to put the Adelaide show together, and that had been done for five years without a break. Which, by the way, is a good segue into giving you guys a plug because um, much, oh, much more, oh. much, much more highly produced, I would say, than our than our efforts. I would yes, say we, we we like a little bit of production, but mm. you guys do more production. Yes. And uh, and I think as a, as you said earlier, Steve, it is a great service to our community, and I, and a large portion of our audience either hail from Adelaide, have studied at Adelaide University, or uh, live here. So, um, for those who don't, apologies, but um, but you should you should listen anyway because it is fascinating. Well, you can't live here now because sorry, we closed the borders. No, no, as long as you go into quarantine for two weeks, nothing's a pretty hard lock now in Victoria. They yeah, but don't be. come from Victoria; come from other places. I guess so. What we want is people from interesting places. We don't want them. They're, they're, they have the ice capital of Australia in Victoria. No, we don't. Know? We do. No, no. It's a, it's a no, Ballarat. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's South Australia. No, it's it's Ballarat. South Australia. It's, no, no. It's it's not. It's no. Ballarat. So finally, a city's used more drugs than us? Yes. Really? Yes. Yeah, 100%. The, the ice capital of Australia. I know this because this is where my, girl, my fiance, should I say, was There's born. Victoria stealing everything <laughs> yeah. from us. Yeah, Taking again. our ice addicts, really? <laughs> I thought Hole's Gap was the ice capital of Australia. Oh, you are such a geography boy tonight. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've had snow play there. Oh, oh not like cocaine. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, look, can you cut that out? <laughs> no, <laughs> okay. no, we can't. It's appalling. It's not even renowned for its snow or ice or anything. <laughs> what, Hole's Gap? Like, gentlemen, we've drifted to a very strange place we now. We're at Snow Play. We were heading somewhere interesting with Tim. Where were you was heading? I? No, I, no oh, I was just saying that you have a lovely show. So That's uh, what I want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is this a very good place to wind up at? Mm. Uh, it could be. That the it Adelaide is- show is mm. a lovely show. And so thank you... Very much for joining us on our show about yes. multiple shows, including your show. Yes. So a quick round of applause, audience, whether you're listening on a bus or a train, I don't care. You must applaud to Nigel Dobson. Thank you. And to Steve Davis. And coming up soon on The Athlete Show, we're going to be talking to a man who does aquaculture in his backyard. We've got a man who's about to hopefully recycle 95 plus percent of every car that leaves the road in Australia. We're going to go dive deep into the state library and, and also the public library system. And that's just before the Christmas episode. That brings us all downhill when David <laughs> and Nigel go full dystopian. This <laughs> time from yeah. the bunker. <laughs> <laughs> but at least they might tell us how to fix it. Yes. Well, but possibly informed by the 95% recycling. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll promise you that, but we'll make sure we... Go just pull, a bit darker than yeah, we can fix. Yeah, and then pull that security out from under your feet as you yep. right, think right, you're somewhere. Because right. that's the joy is to make sure that I'm going, 
Novelty, 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 fear, 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 fear. Wow. Well, in saying that, thank you to Rockford's because we're... They're our final beverage of the year. That's right. We are much smoother. Going out on a fine note. So thank you from the Barossa and thank you, David. Sorry. Thank you, Tim. And thank you, gentlemen, for joining us on the... Well, it's not really the reboot of Blind Drunk because we had a COVID Blind Drunk. But this is our first out in the world. We're really back blind drunk. And so thank you for being a part of yes. Blind Drunk's Back. Thank you to Paul from Fair and Square for housing us this evening and for feeding us wine and lovely food. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying Blind Drunk, please subscribe. And also, please like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Don't forget, we have merchandise. And thank you to the Oscast Network for their support. Peace out.